0: I'm Julia Longoria. This is More Perfect. Today, we're going to spotlight some Supreme Court reporting from a different corner of WNYC Studios. So can you go ahead and just introduce yourself?
1: Yes, my name is Micah Lowinger, and I am a reporter with On The Media from WNYC.
0: Micah reports on online communities, and he kind of backed into a Supreme Court story accidentally. It began while he was reporting on, of all things, hurricanes.
1: So I had learned about volunteer storm relief.
0: Volunteers would try and help each other out during a storm using an app.
1: Walkie-talkie app called Zello. You could go on Zello when a hurricane was approaching the United States, and you could hear people at first just kind of tracking, like armchair meteorologist style, like, What do we know about this storm? When's it going to make landfall? And then once the storm was raging, these walkie-talkie groups would actually do something really beautiful, and they would go out and they would save people from their flooded homes.
0: You could hear all of this unfold in real time, in audio, on Zello. Micah started poking around the app and realized it was used by a lot of groups, not just do-gooders during hurricanes.
1: I started to see that a lot of the people who were most active had these very strange uh, far-right insignias and usernames. And this is when I started to realize, like, oh, these are far-right anti-government militia groups.
0: That's how Micah found himself listening in on a far-right group on Zello on January 6th, 2021. He witnessed something kind of remarkable.
2: To all the boots on the ground in D.C., we are praying stoutly for you that you will get to accomplish what God has put you there for
1: I ended up capturing a recording of an oath keeper breaking into the capitol that seemed to offer some evidence that some part of the violence that took place on January 6th was premeditated that there was a plan
3: Godspeed and fair winds to us Amen, sister. Stay safe.
1: I was hearing this like mysterious woman in this group.
3: We have a good group. We got about 30, 40 of us. We're sticking together and sticking to the plan.
1: She starts talking about the Capitol. She's moving towards the Capitol.
3: We are in the mezzanine. We are in the main dome right now. We are
1: rocking. And then eventually she's inside the rotunda and she's shouting like over like the cacophony of. Police and rioters inside the Rotunda, and she says, like, we
3: shoot people with paintballs, but we're in here.
1: We're in here. Get it, Jess. Do your shit. It hit me like I am listening to somebody narrating themselves breaking into the Capitol.
0: Micah reported on this. He did a piece on WNYC's on the media. He co-wrote an article in The Guardian. And he was invited on to 60 Minutes. And then he got an email from the U.S. government.
1: The government wanted to use that recording as evidence. And I, because I was the one who made the recording, was the only one who could take the stand and verify its authenticity.
0: They wanted him to testify in court as part of the prosecution against the rioters.
1: Being put in this position as a journalist made me quite uncomfortable because... I was concerned that it would hurt my credibility as a journalist.
0: Testifying as a journalist to help put somebody in jail felt to Micah like a big violation of something fundamental.
1: Even though I never spoke to this woman, the Oathkeeper we hear in the recording, I was concerned if you Googled me, all you'd see was Michael Loinger, federal trial, and it would just look like I was a Fed. I write about the far right, and that entails earning the trust of people who are in these kinds of groups. And I am able to uh, earn trust with these sources because I can show them like I can keep a secret. If you want to leak me something, but you don't want people in your group to know that you were the one who gave me the information, no one will ever know. And that is like a kind of a, a agreement built on trust.
0: I felt like this was violating not only the trust between him and his sources, but trust in journalism, by audiences in a democratic
1: society. I don't think we should play buddy-buddy, you know, with the Feds. I knew a subpoena was coming. I knew there was likely nothing I was going to be able to do to get out of it. And I was kind of trying to come to terms with what was about to become kind of like the biggest and weirdest thing to happen to me in my life.
0: Micah felt like he didn't have a choice. He agreed to testify. But he
1: wondered. What have other journalists done historically in this situation?
0: And as with most big questions about the fate of a functioning democracy, it turns out there's a Supreme Court case for that.
1: I ended up learning about Brandsburg v. Hayes and this remarkable journalist named Earl Caldwell, who was kind of at the center of it.
0: Today on More Perfect, the story of journalist Earl Caldwell, courtesy of Micah Lowinger and WNYC's On The Media. Caldwell posed questions to the highest court in our country about what our First Amendment right to freedom of the press really means in a functioning democracy.
4: slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash perfect netsuite.com slash more at
1: radio lab we love nothing more than nerding out about science neuroscience chemistry
4: but but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories stories about policing or politics country music hockey sex of bugs.
1: <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers.
4: And hopefully make you see the world anew.
1: Radio Lab adventures on the edge of what we think we know.
4: Wherever you get your podcasts.
0: I'm Julia Longoria. This is More Perfect. Today, the story of a journalist named Earl Caldwell. He got a call from the U.S. government and ultimately found himself at the center of a Supreme Court case. Micah Lowinger first reported the story for the podcast and radio show On the Media. It was inspired, in part, by Micah getting his own call from the government. A quick note, the clips you'll hear of Earl are courtesy of an oral history project done by the Maynard Institute for Journalism Education. Here's Micah.
1: The story begins when Earl Caldwell, then a reporter in his early 30s, joined the New York Times.
3: There was only one other black reporter on the staff when I got there. And what was approaching was the summer of 67, which was to be like no other summer in the history of the republic. The worst race riots since those two years ago in the Watts section of Los Angeles rocked New Jersey's largest city, Newark, for five consecutive days and nights. Law and order have broken down in Detroit, Michigan. Pillage, looting, murder, and arson have nothing to do with civil rights.
1: The paper flew Earl all around the country to cover the riots and the civil rights movement. And in April 1968, the Times sent him down to Memphis, Tennessee to interview Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Earl checked in at the Lorraine Motel, where Dr. King was also staying. And Dr.
3: King gave me an interview. While we're standing on the balcony talking, he he begins to ask me about my personal life, how I got into the newspaper, what it was like being reported at the New York Times. He said, we'll talk again tomorrow because we didn't have a chance to go through everything. And uh, nobody told me there was going to be a big rally that night which turned out to be a very historical moment for that's where King made his mountaintop speech. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it really
5: doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop.
1: Earl only learned about this speech later because he was back at the motel. And it was this
3: fierce storm, like it was lightning and thunder. It was, the shadows were rattling and everything. And I've seen The
5: Promised Land. I may not get there with you.
4: But I want you to know tonight
3: that we as a people will get to the Promised Land.
1: The next morning, Earl heard about the morbid premonitions in King's speech. And the way Earl describes this day sounds like a bad dream. You know, that kind of dread when you're rushing somewhere but you feel like you're treading water. I'm trying to get to King
3: right away, and I can't get to him, and the day is getting away from us, and I was missing my deadline.
1: I imagine him pacing around his motel room, chain-smoking cigarettes, trying to figure out what to do when he heard a loud noise outside.
3: I heard what I thought was a bomb blast, and I run out there in my shorts, So what happened, what happened? And then I ran up to the balcony, and uh, I saw Dr. King, could see he was, horrible wounds, huge, bigger than your fist and his jaw and neck.
5: Dr. King was standing on the balcony of a second floor hotel room tonight when, according to a companion, a shot was fired from across the street. In the friend's words, the bullet exploded in his face.
1: You can see Earl in some of the earliest photos of the assassination, in the scrum hovering over MLK on the balcony. He was the only reporter on the scene and the first to break the story. So that was indeed the biggest story I ever had.
0: But the story that Earl Caldwell is probably best known for is his own. It started with an assignment.
3: The New York Times sent me out to California to uh, look into this group that had been rising in California and was coming to some national prominence called the Black Panther Party.
1: Within a matter of months... Earl had developed
5: deep access within the group. So it wasn't easy, even for a black reporter like Earl, to gain the trust of the Panthers.
1: Lee Levine is a media law expert. He's writing a book about Earl Caldwell.
5: The way he did it was providing what the Panthers considered to be fair coverage. Uh, You know, he was not misrepresenting who they were and what they were doing.
3: I got so on the inside that I saw the Panthers moving a large cache of weapons from San Francisco to Oakland, where Huey Newton, the leader in the Panthers, was on trial for murder of a police officer. 3,000 Black Panthers turned out for the start of the trial. Spokesmen say that if Newton is found guilty and given the death penalty, the sentence will have to be carried out over their dead bodies. I put this story in the paper. And when that story came out, the FBI came to the New York Times and demanded that I give them additional information about these weapons and how I knew it, where they were, and all, and all this stuff. And uh, I said, you know, what I know about this, I put it in the paper and saying, well, look, you're there all the time. We want an inside report. We want you to tell us everything that you're getting, everything you know it. Ooh, I said, I, I, not only could I not do it, I can't even have this conversation with you. They began to call every day. We now know that, in
5: fact, the FBI had informants among reporters who they could plant stories with. There are multiple examples of what is called COINTELPRO, which is its counterintelligence program directed at a variety of what the FBI deemed to be subversive groups, which included the Panthers.
1: 40 years later, Earl was shocked to learn that his friend, Ernest Withers, a prominent civil rights photojournalist, had been an informant much of his career.
3: So finally, one day, they called Mrs. Brackett. They said, you tell Earl Caldwell. We're not playing games with him. And they got a subpoena for me to be the star witness against the Black Panthers before a federal grand
5: jury. He had two strains running through his head. One was, as a journalist, I'm not You know, be a snitch for the FBI, and then not inconsistent with that, um, as a Black person, I I am not going to let the FBI use me to advance their goals against other Black people.
1: To make matters worse, the government also wanted his reporting materials, including the unpublished stuff.
5: Earl had a boatload of documents and tapes, a lot of recorded interviews with the Panthers, and they were all in a storage room at the Times Bureau.
1: Earl discussed his archive with a lawyer at a fancy San Francisco law firm that the Times had hired to deal with the subpoena.
3: And the guy says to me, look. We have a tremendous problem with law and order
5: out here. And went on, according to Earl, to talk about the problem with black militant violence. Um, The guy told him to bring in his notes and stuff so that he could go through them and told Earl that, I think there's probably stuff uh, that you have that the government's entitled to. (laughs) And that totally freaked
3: Earl out. I'm sitting there thinking like, (laughs) you're in an awful situation because... You're at the top of your career. And all of a sudden, they're saying something that could get you killed. It wasn't that somebody would say, go shoot Caldwell. It was that in this environment, somebody would say, if he came out here and told us he's a reporter and got on his access and he's a spy for the FBI now, he shouldn't live.
1: Earl learned that the feds were going to come to the San Francisco Bureau to serve the subpoena.
3: So we didn't know what to do and had all these documents. So
1: we just said, we we'll would destroy it. Let's just just
3: shred everything. Let's dig these tapes apart, cut them up and everything. We had two of these real high garbage cans. We filled them up.
1: And ultimately, he decided to fight the subpoena in court. Because of his frustrations with the paper's legal team, Earl hired Anthony Amsterdam, a white lawyer recommended by the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Amsterdam was confident that Earl could beat the subpoena. Lee Levine.
5: My feeling is that in reality, the reason the subpoena was issued was because Earl, among a few other reporters, was giving a view of the Panthers that was contrary to the government and specifically the FBI's preferred narrative. To drive a wedge between Earl and the Panthers, they didn't need documents. They just needed to call him before a grand jury and, you know, have them testify behind closed doors, which is what happens in a grand
1: jury The Panthers wouldn't know what he said or if he said anything.
5: Correct. Even if all he did in the grand jury room was assert his privilege not to answer substantive questions, I think the Panthers, justifiably, given what the FBI was up to, would have been nervous and would have cut off access to him.
1: And actually, this became a big part of Anthony Amsterdam's defense for Earl. They rooted this idea of reporter's privilege in the First Amendment.
5: Everybody understands that the First Amendment prohibits the government from preventing publication in advance. That's called a prior restraint. That's the Pentagon Papers. Everybody also understands that the government can't penalize you after the fact for publishing information that relates to a matter of public concern, especially if it's true. What Earl was arguing is something different, but I think equally important, which is that even actions that government takes that don't directly prohibit or penalize the dissemination of information can have the effect— in operation of depriving the public of important information about matters of public concern, and that that has an impact on the free flow of information that is analogous to a law that penalizes a reporter for
1: publishing information after the fact. This is essentially what I was concerned about when I got my subpoena. If people come to suspect that all reporters are just secretly working on behalf of the government— the social contract propping up journalism pretty much just falls apart.
5: Do you want me to go on and talk about what happened next?
1: What happened next was that the court was sympathetic to the argument, but still ruled that Earl should go before a grand jury to authenticate his reporting. The Times thought this was a fair ruling, and Earl was happy to say that what he'd written was true, just not behind closed doors.
5: So Earl decided to appeal, and the Times, I think it's fair to say, was not happy about that.
1: Earl wanted to talk about appealing the decision, so he went to speak with the top in-house New York Times lawyer, Chief Counsel James Goodale.
3: And Goodale shaking his finger in my face saying, you keep pushing this and what's going to happen is you're going to get some bad law written and reporters will be suffering for a lot of years under this. And I said, I'm not pushing anything. It's the Justice Department that's pushing it, but he tried to put it on me.
1: This conversation turned out to be prescient. At first, everything seemed to be going well for Earl and his legal team.
5: Lo and behold, the uh, Court of Appeals agreed with Earl and ruled that he didn't even have to appear before the grand jury.
1: And this was a unanimous decision, right?
5: Yes, unanimous decision.
1: And so the government appeals?
5: Yes. The government seeks review in the Supreme Court. And at the same time, there are these other cases wending their way through the courts. Paul Pappas, television reporter in Massachusetts,
1: had also tried to fight a subpoena related to his reporting on the Black Panthers. Then there was Paul Brandsberg, a reporter in Kentucky, who refused to appear before a grand jury to discuss two sources he had witnessed making marijuana products.
5: And all three of those cases were ultimately taken to the Supreme Court for review.
0: these three press freedom cases come to be known as Brandsburg v. Hayes. But before the Supreme Court hears the case, something very dramatic happens that changes both the court and freedom of the press in our country forever. That's after the break. I'm Julia Longoria, and from WNYC Studios, this is More Perfect. In 1971, as Earl Caldwell is preparing to appear at the Supreme Court, the court has a solid block of relatively liberal justices, and Earl likes his chances. But then, within one week... The
3: White House announced this evening that Justice Hugo L. Black, the oldest member of the Supreme Court, has retired from the bench. Associate Justice John Marshall Harlan turned in his resignation today, just six days after the resignation of Justice Hugo Black.
0: Nixon is president, and so the entire balance of the court shifts, which is where we pick up with Micah Lowinger's story.
2: The U.S. Supreme Court
5: today took on the kind of conservative weight sought so long by Mr. Nixon. It did so by
2: reaching its full complement of nine members with the swearing-in of Justices Lewis Powell, Jr. and William Rehnquist.
5: Justice Rehnquist came to the court from the Justice Department, and while in the Justice Department, one of his jobs as head of the Office of Legal Counsel was to formulate the administration's position with respect to this very issue.
3: (laughs) So... Everybody just assumed he would recuse himself. And he did. He was sitting
1: right there. Why didn't he recuse himself?
5: Uh, I don't know. Uh, (laughs) uh, I suppose he wanted to rule on the case and didn't think he had a conflict. Just like today with uproars over Justice Thomas ruling on cases that some people think he shouldn't. There's really nothing that can be done about it.
1: On June 29th, 1972, the court voted 5-4 against the reporters, with Justice Rehnquist casting one of the deciding votes.
5: Justice White, who wrote for the majority, wrote that this whole concept of indirect restraints was bogus. And then Justice Powell, newly on the court, wrote an opinion concurring in Justice White's opinion, but adding a few words of his own. His opinion has been... Characterized over the years as enigmatic because it seems to suggest, although not entirely clearly, that there are circumstances in which, on a case by case basis, a reporter would be able to successfully refuse to answer questions posed by a grand jury.
1: This enigmatic opinion by Justice Powell would turn out to have a long afterlife, which we'll get to in a minute.
5: After the Supreme Court's decision, Earl never heard another word from the government. So he was never called to testify. There's an argument that the government accomplished what it wanted to accomplish, which is that it had established a precedent that would make sources in the future reluctant to talk to journalists.
3: But the Supreme Court said that, yes, the government can force you to be a spy and that if you resist, uh, you go to jail.
1: Here's Earl speaking with CBS in 1973.
3: I honestly don't believe that it's possible to do effective journalism in America now.
5: Well, let me say this, in the immediate aftermath of the decision, there were, you know, the the kinds of editorials you would expect in newspapers all over the country.
2: Yeah, there was like a kind of a freak out. Yeah. Editors at the New York Times are worried about the effects of the Supreme Court's decision. National editor Gene Roberts says his staff reporters Are already jittery.
1: After the ruling, Earl testified before Congress advocating for a federal shield law.
3: Only when we can operate in an atmosphere free of the intimidation of government can we assure the public that we are vigorously investigating all phases of corruption and political chicanery.
1: And lawmakers from both parties were listening. They discussed two kinds of bills, laws that would provide absolute immunity, no revealing of anonymous sources, no testifying before grand juries, period, or a qualified immunity, which would only require outing sources if three criteria are met.
5: One would be that the information sought from the reporters relevant to an alleged crime. Second, that there's an overriding national interest involved. And third, and this is really the, the kicker in it, that it can be obtained, that information, from the reporter and no other
1: source. The issue is that news outlets were split on the question of qualified versus absolute immunity. They just couldn't agree. And as a result, the federal shield law died on the vine.
5: The one constructive thing that came out of it was that Jim Goodale,
1: The New York Times general counsel who allegedly wagged his finger at Earl
5: to his great and everlasting credit, decided that he should take Justice Powell's admittedly enigmatic language and pour meaning into it. And over the next several decades, Jim kind of took the lead and was instrumental in having virtually every federal court of appeals and virtually every state Supreme Court hold that, in fact there is uh, the kind of qualified First Amendment-based reporter's privilege and that it operates in every kind of legal proceeding with the one exception of grand juries.
1: In other words, Goodale and his fellow media lawyers successfully pointed to the Caldwell-Brandsburg ruling to shield reporters from the judicial system. Despite this, several writers over the years have been forced to choose prison over revealing sources to a grand jury.
2: Judith Miller was jailed for 85 days. Vanessa Leggett was jailed for refusing to give up her materials to the government. Josh Wolfe, the longest
1: jailed journalist
2: for protecting a source
5: in U.S. history.
1: Toward the end of my conversation with Lee Levine, he told me he was pretty sure I could have gotten out of participating in the January 6th case, that I could have fought the subpoena in court and won, which honestly came as a shock, and I think he could tell.
5: Let me say this and it'll make you feel better. <laughs> Just a few years before this, during the first phase of the civil rights movement in the South, where reporters were witnessing the Klan engaging in violence and doing all other sorts of despicable things, many reporters were more than happy to share what they knew and saw and heard with the FBI. (laughs) Nobody thought anything about it.
1: This past October, Attorney General Merrick Garland announced a new written policy at the DOJ that the department would limit the circumstances in which prosecutors can subpoena journalists for their reporting materials. Of course, a policy unlike a law can be easily undone by the next administration or the next. Congress needs to pass a federal shield law, like the Protect Reporters from Excessive State Suppression, a.k.a. the Press Act, which Representative Jamie Raskin discussed on the House floor last September. I'm very hopeful that this is the Congress in which we can get it done. It wasn't. The House bill passed, but the Senate bill never left the Judiciary Committee. Representative Raskin told me he intends to reintroduce the Press Act this summer. This is a basic protection for journalism. We should have codified it 50 years ago, and we need to pass it now.
0: The whole time Micah was digging into Earl Caldwell's story, he was thinking about his own situation— There are key differences between their stories. Micah wasn't being asked to testify against his sources. The Department of Justice just wanted him to verify his January 6th recordings in court. Micah ultimately did testify, but he felt complicated about it.
1: Well, there's a few ways you can approach it. One, you could just be like, the government wants to use my reporting to hold a violent extremist group accountable for the crimes that they committed on January 6th. And there are certainly people who I spoke to who I think considered that to be my civil duty and also a great honor. There are also people, other journalists I spoke to, who don't feel so strongly about this idea that you should never collaborate with law enforcement. Hmm. But for me, I felt like I had done my job. Like, my job was to uncover the truth. Yeah. I did not feel that my job was to uncover a piece of information and then be the courier of that information through the criminal justice system right up to the point where somebody gets a sentence and they go to prison.
0: Was there an outcome in the case?
1: Yes. Um, Jessica Watkins, who's the woman whose voice we hear in the recordings that I made, was sentenced to eight and a half years, And uh, Stuart Rhodes, who was the higher profile defendant in the case that I testified in, was sentenced to 18 years of prison. I felt a combination of pride that my journalism had made a difference. Like this was the culmination of all of it, whether I wanted to admit it or not. And then on the other hand, I felt very confused, like – whether justice is truly being served, whether we can expect people to be rehabilitated. I just, you know, I was just kind of in that stew of, you know, not knowing.
0: (sighs) The stew of not knowing. (laughs) It's really where we all live now. Yes,
1: yeah, indeed. (laughs) What I see at the heart of this is just like trust, which is this very squishy thing. And like, what I think Caldwell's case was getting at, and I think what my anxiety and ambivalence about participating in the trial was about, was the vulnerability of trust. Trust between me and the people I would love to speak to in the future who can help me do the best possible journalism I can do, and the trust between us journalists and our audience. And we have to preserve that trust at all costs. And I know it's in short supply. I know that, like, the trust in the media is at an all-time low, and that's a problem. But I just think it's a very fragile thing. And we as journalists can get people to trust us, sources and readers and listeners and viewers, by acting with integrity and transparency and writing about things that matter to people and. uh yeah, I don't know, being a mensch, you know, however you interpret that, right? <laughs> yeah.
0: Micah Lowinger is a correspondent for On The Media. The piece we played today is part of an hour-long episode that goes deep into Micah's reporting on January 6th. It's called Seditious Conspiracy. We've got a link to it in our show notes. While you're at it, go ahead and subscribe to On The Media. It's a super smart, rigorously reported show and a great listen. Okay, all the credits.
2: More Perfect is a production of WNYC Studios. This episode was produced by me, Whitney Jones, and Julia Longoria, with help from Jenny Lawton. It was fact-checked by Sophie Hurwitz. Special thanks to Terra Grove and the Maynard Institute for Journalism Education. The More Perfect team also includes Emily Seiner, Emily Boutine, Alyssa Eads, Gabrielle Burbet, Salman Ahad Khan, Emily Madre, David Herman, and Joe Plord. Our theme is by Alex Overington, and episode art by Candace Evers. If you want more stories about the Supreme Court, we have plenty of old episodes for you to enjoy. Subscribe to More Perfect and scroll back for more than two dozen episodes. Supreme Court Audio is from Oye, a free law project by Justia and the Legal Information Institute of Cornell Law School. Support for More Perfect is provided in part by the Smart Family Fund and by listeners like you. Thank you for listening and for supporting.